This is episode number 77, Why Training with Heart Rate and Wattage Isn't Enough, with Dr. Andrew Sellers. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. How's it going, you guys? I hope your week is off to an amazing start, or I guess we're almost at the end of the week, so how about TGI weekend coming up here soon? In Canada, it's the Remembrance Day weekend, which is a national holiday here, similar to Veterans Day in the United States. It's so hard to believe that it's already November. It feels like this year has just flown by. And you know what they say, time flies when you're having fun. Speaking of time, I posted a tweet the other day, and it's just something that I think about pretty frequently. And the question you should ask yourself just for fun is, what would you do if you had an infinite amount of money? Like, what would you do with your time? And a common answer is ride your bike or hike more or spend time with your family. And those things are awesome. But what else would you do? Because there's 24 hours in a day. So say you didn't have to go to the job that you're currently working at. What is it that you would do with your time that would give you the most meaning in your life? I think having that awareness around the things that bring you the most joy in your life and the things that have the most meaning to you is just important to keep at the forefront of our minds. And while we don't have to do those things for work or for our job, I find that it helps just manage our time better. And if you listen to a previous episode with Greg McEwen on essentialism, it's about learning where to put our energy. And if we know what is important to us, Aside from work, or maybe for work, if you just know the things that matter to you the most, it's often helpful to know where to spend your time because there's so many different things we can be doing with our time. We get pulled in a billion different directions. And after you do that thing, think to yourself, how do I feel now? Do I feel energized? Do I feel better? Or do I feel drained? And try to do more of those things where you feel like you're getting energy put into your tank instead of energy being drained out of. And that's just something that's been on my mind a lot lately, and I just wanted to share it with you guys. I've been doing a little bit of journaling just about happiness in general, and I just want to share it with you. I'm the happiest whenever I'm not in a hurry, and also whenever I'm doing those things that bring me joy. So one of the things I wrote down that makes me feel really happy is actually this podcast. So I just first wanted to just say thank you so much for listening to the show and for being part of the Sonia Looney Show community. It really means a lot to me and I love whenever you guys send me messages and whenever you share the show, when you take a screenshot and share it on Instagram, because I get to see that you're listening and it just makes me feel so good whenever I get messages from some of the listeners just saying how the show and the guests on the show have helped them be better in their lives. And that's what this show is all about. And that is the thing that brings me the most joy is just being able to help people just take a step to feel better. And for me, being able to talk to these guests and being able to just constantly be in a state of growth and learning, that's what makes me feel most alive. So I'm so happy that I get to share it with you. And thank you for this amazing, amazing opportunity and this privilege to get to share with you all of this information. 
If you haven't left a review on iTunes, I would super appreciate that. It takes only a few seconds and it really helps with the growth of this show. So all you have to do is open up Apple Podcasts on your phone. Just scroll down, find my show, scroll down to the bottom and there'll be stars that you can highlight and you can also type in a review. It really helps a lot and I really appreciate it. So thank you and thank you to those of you who have done that. Also, if you'd like to support my work financially, there's a Patreon page, which is a crowdfunding website for just four bucks a month makes a massive difference. There are currently 29 people who are patrons of the show and big shout out and thank you to those of you who are behind me. It feels so good to know that you have my back. And the Patreon site is patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. And it's also on my website. If you go to sonialooney.com slash podcasts. Okay, so let's talk about today's guest. He is awesome. He's actually a really good friend of mine. And I met him whenever I moved to Kelowna. And he and his team have completely changed the way that I view training. And it's been really empowering to learn everything that I have from them. So what if I told you that there's an entire segment of your training that maybe you've never considered? When I first moved to Kelowna, I was introduced to Dr. Andrew Sellers. He's highly enthusiastic. He is a pretty amazing triathlete and mountain biker himself. We ride together from time to time. And he has a really great wife named Ginny. And his daughter is like the dream child that everyone wishes they had. Dr. Sellers is an anesthesiologist as well as a sports physiology expert. He also is co-founder of Balance Point Racing, which is a team and group and also an assessment and bike fitting company here in Kelowna. And they're amazing. When I did my first physiology assessment with Balance Point, I realized that everything I thought I knew about training and had learned from some of the top sports institutions in the United States was actually really limited. And the crazy thing is that a lot of assessments are still done using a very old school method of measuring all of your physical systems, like a lactate threshold test, like so old school. Balance Point taught me that there are many more factors at play and that these things can actually be measured and they can give you legitimate, actionable information that you can add into your training to be way more effective and to understand your body that much better. For example, instead of wondering why my wattage was low when I was tired, like why my legs felt bad and why can't I go very fast? I learned exactly what it was about my body that made me unable to generate higher power. Things like how much oxygen is actually in my muscles? Like sometimes our body can systemically have plenty of oxygen, but an exercising muscle itself will be desaturated. Learning if your heart is tired, learning if your respiratory is tired. Like how many times have we ignored our respiratory system? Like you just realize, oh, I'm breathing fast or I'm not breathing fast. Or maybe you don't think about how fast you're breathing at all. And the respiratory system is like the ace in the back pocket that most people don't think about. They don't even acknowledge that you can train this as a separate system. And oftentimes the respiratory system is the most limiting system. There's a lot of incredibly important and useful knowledge in this episode with Dr. Sellers. If you're interested in taking your training up a notch, it's really been interesting to learn about my body. Everybody is different, but I just, again, like I said, I would be frustrated because I know I would see my heart rate was low or I would see that my power numbers were lower. And I just wanted to know why it's like, okay, I need to rest. That's obvious. But why did this happen? And how can I work towards making this better? Which of my systems is tired? So it's been just really helpful. And also to have additional training devices, which we will talk about in this episode. 
if you've heard of some of these things before that we're going to talk about, I would love to hear what your experience has been because a lot of times we don't talk about the respiratory system in regards to our training and we don't really measure it either. And the cool thing is Dr. Sellers has worked with a brilliant engineer to invent something that actually measures your respiratory frequency and a lot of other data that's portable. So check it out. I don't want to spoil this episode. I'm just really excited about this conversation that I had with Dr. Andrew Sellers. So let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Or I, I guess I should say Dr. Sellers. <laughs> no, Andrew's fine. It's really fun to be able to record a podcast in person. And we went for a beautiful fall ride right before we started recording the show. Yeah, the, you know, the weather in the Okanagan is fantastic this time of year. It's like one of my favorite seasons. It's, yeah, it's awesome. Good grippy trails and not too hot. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so I first met you when I moved here. And my husband, Matt, said, you have to meet this awesome group balance point because they have physiology knowledge and testing and coaching like you've never seen before. And I had done testing with and coaching through, you know, Boulder Center for Sports Medicine and CTS and fast cat coaching. And I thought that I had seen the top of the top and I was wrong. <laughs> That's a super nice compliment for us. Yeah. So how did you get into this? Because your background, you're an anesthesiologist. Yeah, it's a long, circuitous route. I started at UVic doing a degree in human performance, and that sparked an interest. I had a couple of really good physiology profs at UVic who were leading the fields in exercise testing. Uh, Howie Wanger was one of them, is a brilliant uh, exercise physiologist who worked with a lot of pro hockey teams at the time. So there was my interest was in physiology. I started, I had been swim coaching for a number of years paying my way through university uh, with a big summer club in BC. I actually moved up north to coach a smaller team, uh, take on a head coaching role with a smaller team up in a little northern town called Quinnell and met what turned out to be one of the most influential people in my life, which was Jörg Feldman, who's a Swiss physiologist and just an incredible human being. And uh, so I spent three summers up there and just met and got influenced by his uh, incredible scientific brain. He's the smartest person I've ever met and has a true love of physiology and uh, has helped a lot of world-class athletes over the years from his small little center up north and some of the biggest cycling talents in the world, really, with Ryder Heshtal and Jeff Kabush being two of young, who were young athletes who worked with him in their development years. He's worked with some marathoners and speed skaters and endurance athletes from all over the world, really. Uh, yeah, so I met him. He sparked a, or re-sparked an interest in physiology. I went back and did a master's in education in coaching studies as I was trying to get into medical school and failing. So I took on a job as an assistant coach at the University of Victoria for a couple of years while I did my master's. And yeah, from there I got into... I did get into med school eventually, and, and my career path changed from physiology to medicine, and it became a way, medicine's now become a way for me to reinvest my energies back into physiology, so I have a good paying job that allows me to pay the bills, and I get to play around with the physiology stuff. So Was that hard whenever, because you were really interested in the physiology aspect, and you had this great mentor. And then suddenly you actually got into medical school. Like, did you ever think, oh, I, I've been working so hard to get in, but I actually don't know if I want to do that now. If I thought I could have 
made the money in physiology to be happy and satisfied, I might have stayed with physiology, but I couldn't see working hard enough to be able to make it pay off. So I, I found it really, I found that decision not that hard because I, I had a gear in Canada because of our public health care system, I had a guaranteed job and that job security was important to me. So for me, it wasn't a hard decision to go into medicine. It was, it was actually an, the easy choice. The hard choice would have been to follow my passion and, and try and make a go of it. But I actually, I like the balance that I have now where I work to make money and the physiology is a fun, enjoyable part of my life that I get to play with. And I don't have to make it, I don't have to make money at it. I just get to, I get to have fun with it. Yeah. I think actually some people don't realize that it sounds amazing to have your passion as your job, but it can actually burn you out. Like there's been a lot of of talk about burnout on the show lately and if you love something so much, but then you're on the hook to make money at it, it can take the joy out of it sometimes. I totally agree. I think it's a little bit overrated making your job out of your passion. I think I think keeping the two separate has some for sure benefits to it. If you can find a job that you can do that allows you to follow your passion 100%, that's great. And it is it's certainly a lifestyle choice for sure to do that sometimes. And for me, it's worked out really well. So yeah, I'd heavily suggest people find a job that they enjoy doing that gives rewards and financially makes them happy enough that they can pursue their other their other joys in life. Awesome. So what brought you to Kelowna and what started this whole Balance Point group? The Okanagan Valley is a, a pretty amazing place for people who haven't been here. It's uh, It's got some of the most amazing ski facilities, downhill and cross-country ski facilities in North America. It's got access to a warm lake that you can swim in four months, five months a year. It's got some amazing road cycling and some of the best mountain biking anywhere. So it wasn't a hard choice to move to the Okanagan when when I was done medical school. My family also had had land that they'd bought in the 60s um, that happened to be at the head of the lake. And so I got to move on to the lake and live in a beautiful spot. So that was a that was a key reason that I came to the Okanagan. Kelowna is is the bigger center. I actually live a little further north in a smaller town called Vernon, which is where my parents had some property. But uh, Kelowna had a small group of athletes that wanted to be part of a program that we had just started back in 2006 called Balance Point, which we really started as a small project to help a few young athletes out. There was a couple young teenagers who were starting to show an interest in triathlon and and mountain biking and didn't have coaches. There wasn't really any paid coaches in the valley at the time. And they were looking for some help and they knew that I had a background in physiology and they'd seen me racing at a few triathlons and stuff. And I was playing around with some new testing protocols that Jörg had taught me using, at the time we were using lactate, finger poke lactate monitoring with one of the first mobile units brought to North America. And Jörg was really on the forefront of that development and developed his own testing method that blew away the whole concepts of lactate thresholds and, and things. So I was teaching physiology courses for coaches at the time and a couple athletes approached me and asked if I would support them and I couldn't do it on my own so I pulled a couple of really small sponsors together to help pay for their kits and cover some of the costs involved in the testing and we started Balance Point Racing as a team and then it grew we had a colleague 
who came to one of my courses and wanted to franchise the business idea of it. And it really wasn't a business at that time, but he wanted to take it on. And he was from New Zealand working in Kelowna. And we started a weekly or monthly program in Kelowna, of edu an education series and invited endurance athletes to come. And from that program, we developed an, an athlete base of 25 or 30 athletes in Kelowna, based out of Kelowna, that were coached by our colleague, Chris Willett. And I would help with the sort of physiology side of things, and he would do the testing and coaching, and they would all train together for having fun. And, and that's kind of how we got associated in Kelowna. And from there, eventually, Chris moved back to New Zealand with his family and took on a bigger role coaching with some of the national athletes in New Zealand. And I see that he's doing really well. I still follow his uh, progress over there with some of his athletes doing extremely well at, uh, at World Championships recently in triathlon. And the job uh, got filtered down to another young, great coach named Luke Way, who's been heading it up ever since. And he's coaching the next wave of junior athletes out of Kelowna with one of the top triathletes in the country coming out of his program named Brock Hole. And Luke's been running the program for the last eight years, going on nine years now, and just keeps building the ideas and building the program. So we still have a really strong group in Kelowna, but I'm really now just acting as a mentor and uh, thing for Luke, and he's carrying the bulk of the weight of the program. Yeah, so I want to get into talking about physiology, get my nerd glasses out and put them on, because a lot of facilities are still using what I think are archaic methods of testing after what I've seen over the last five years working, doing the balance point assessments. So you mentioned the testing the lactate threshold. And a lot of times in conversation now we talk about power, we talk about like FTP, functional threshold power, and we also talk about lactate threshold. And I know for a fact that some of these other companies still just use only one biomarker lactate threshold, and maybe they'll use VO2 max, and that's kind of the extent of their testing. So whenever I first did my first assessment with you guys, which has evolved greatly with, with all the research you guys have been doing over the years, that just seems so old school to me. So can you talk about the biomarkers and the process of a balance point assessment and the, the key elements that you actually look at in an athlete whenever you're trying to assess them as a physiologist and as a coach, because it's it's far more than just looking at someone's heart rate or someone's VO2 max. Sure. You're, uh, and you know this because you've talked to me about this a lot, is that it opens up a huge can of worms when you start questioning something that's been historically done for really decades now, and it's hard to shift the momentum. So I've been involved with lactate testing and physiologic testing since 2003. And we taught lactate testing courses for years. We didn't ever do lactate thresholds. We proved, and it's been proven in studies over 20 years ago now that there's no such thing as a lactate threshold. And Oh, wait, sorry to interrupt, okay. but I actually no. just started thinking that, you know, we're big science nerds, but maybe some people listening, okay. maybe this is the first time they've even heard that word. So maybe sure. we need to elaborate more on that. So historically the understanding was that lactate was a negative response to high intensity exercise. It's a lactate is a half a glucose molecule. It's a th three carbon chain sugar, and it's the byproduct of glucose metabolism. It's been attributed to muscle pain, fatigue, and all sorts of other negative connotations. People talk about lactic acid and stuff. And there's 
there's really no good evidence that lactate has a negative role in the body. Lactate is a fuel source for a number of different processes, including the Krebs cycle, but also with refueling the liver. So if you understand that lactate is simply a half a sugar molecule and you recognize that it's a fuel source for the body, it can't possibly be a negative byproduct. It's a positive byproduct. So yes, high lactate levels is often associated with high levels of fatigue and potentially high levels of muscle soreness, but those, the fatigue and muscle soreness have nothing to do with lactate. So that's one myth that, that we tried to show people through the literature. The second part of that is the misunderstanding that lactate levels, the absolute amount of lactate in your system, that there is a level at which above you will get tired or fatigued. Again, if you understand that it's just a breakdown of sugars, the more sugars you break down, the higher your lactate's going to go. If you do a standard step test, well, it doesn't matter whether you do it every minute or every three minutes, you increase the intensity. Eventually, you are going to get to a point where your lactate levels are going to increase. Historically, that simple step test and taking lactate every three minutes showed that above a certain level and the typical number that's been banded around is four millimoles above that level fatigue would set in and people couldn't maintain their intensity and the problem is when you have done a lot of lactate testing and you test lactate outside of the simple step test you can recognize the problem with that step test so if you do i'll try and go through really quickly why lactate thresholds don't work and it's it bear with me for a second if you extend the duration of each step, so if your typical step test is three minutes long and each step is 20 watts for the cyclists out there, if we go 100 watts, 120, 140, 160, 180 until failure, and you test lactate every three minutes, you're going to see a, a trend line that starts relatively flat and increases to the point of getting past four millimoles and then rapidly increasing after that. All you have to do to disprove the idea of a threshold is change those steps to four minutes and all of a sudden you have a different curve at which point you'll have a different point at which that person will get to four millimoles they'll do it at a lower heart rate or a higher heart rate and if in the same athlete you can get two different lactate curves by just extending the step test by one minute you can understand that neither one of those step tests is valid for making any sort of conclusions with regards to training intensities or long-term ability to sustain an effort. So the idea of a threshold breaks down very quickly with four millimoles as a standard lactate. The argument that some people have made is that there are different ways of looking at thresholds that you can do the, you can actually look at the curve and take the tangent to the curve and use an angle. And again, you're using math to now explain why a number or a certain curve is different and a certain angle of the curve will give you the same number. And again, if you extend those same tests to a different duration, you'll get a different curve and get a different number again. So I'd argue, again, that method is also flawed. That's not even taking into consideration that if you take an athlete who doesn't have the same amount of sugar to start with, so if you take an athlete who's on a low-carbohydrate diet and a high-fat diet, they will not have as much sugar in their system and they will have a lower lactate number. So you can dramatically change someone's lactate curve by changing what they eat. Now, if you change what someone eats and that can change their performance curve, then guess what? Your 
predictions for training intensities on a lactate number, again, falls apart and makes no sense. So what Jurg did, knowing these historical uses of lactate were flawed, he developed a test that didn't actually look at the absolute number, he actually looked at the trends. So if you increase and you see an a dramatic increase in lactate, you know you're over your lactate threshold, whatever your lactate threshold is. If you slow down and drop your intensity down and you can show that you can clear lactate again, which you can at a lower intensity, then you're below a lactate threshold and you can play around with the intensities to show a point at which your lactate is in balance with your system. That number has been called a number of different things. Jurg was the first one to actually develop a system. He called it a balance point, hence the name of our team that we started 10 years ago. It's been called a maximum lactate steady state. That was one of Jurg's other students who took that idea and basically wrote a study to show that it was valid and put his name on it and took Jurg's name off of it. So there's a, these are some of the challenges when you start questioning what's happening in literature and why one form of a test becomes sort of internationally recognized when it's actually been stolen from the person who actually developed it. So Jurg's never been given credit for the incredible research he did on lactate mechanisms and understanding and taught it freely to a number of people. I was one of them and I benefited greatly from his influence. And so I always give him credit for what he created and what he gave us. Uh, other people haven't been quite as generous with him over the years, unfortunately. Yeah, anyway, so that's lactate. That's my take on lactate. And we still use lactate in our testing sometimes, but we understand its value and we understand its the challenges with it. And we never use an absolute number. I think anybody who's still using an absolute number for lactate is grossly misunderstanding what they're representing and, and probably doesn't have a true understanding of physiology or the metabolic process. So please throw out your four millimole lactate <laughs> threshold test and, and come up with a different... Use, use MLSS or look up Jurg's old version of lactate balance point if you still want to use lactate as your primary thing. I think there's better forms. We've moved away from using lactate in our general testing because we don't need it anymore. There's better technology out there now, which is how why, again, why we've developed the balance point assessment, which is, again, based on some of Jurg's original work and also some of on his newer work. He's also given up using lactate because he helped develop a new system that doesn't need finger pokes, so we don't have to use invasive monitoring anymore. So he's taught us how to do that. And we've taken those ideas to another level again. So, Awesome. So how a lot of times people would plan somebody's training is they would do one of these tests. They'd be pricking your finger and taking a drop of blood every step, however many minutes that would be chosen and testing it for those the four millimoles. And then what they would do after that to assign you coaching is they would take that that heart rate that you were at. And, and now they have power. So they'll say this heart rate, this power, and then they assign coaching based on that number. Yeah, typically using a percent of that number. So 80% of your lactate threshold or 75% of your lactate threshold, and they would cons they convert that to a wattage that you're going to sustain for the rest of your training plan or your training program for the week or the month. Yeah, and that's how I trained for a number of years. But whenever I did my first assessment with you guys, well, suddenly we're, we were looking at my respiratory system, which is something I never thought of before. And as technologies progress, there's been additional things that we'll talk about soon that we have added to the balance point assessment. But can you talk about respiratory system and also just looking at the body as a whole machine instead of just looking at this one, this one number, the lactate threshold number? 
Sure. So another one of those things that you gave us the idea of was looking at the whole body and how the whole body works together to produce some level of output. For cyclists, that's power. For swimmers, it's speed. For a runner, it's how fast they can cover a distance. And he told us to look at all of the aspects of any sport that contribute to that. And so we broke it up into systems. So yes, we look at heart rate for cardiac, but there's more to just the heart rate to look at cardiac dynamics. But so the cardiac system is one of the systems that contributes to performance. So does the respiratory system in an equal way. And we'll, we can talk about that in a little more detail. So cardiac respiratory are, are two of the major components. The next component is obviously the muscles. And we call we put that into a lump together, musculoskeletal system. Sorry, I have to laugh because Canadians say skeletal. <laughs> Instead of skeletal. skeletal. Yeah, okay, I so, always laugh at that. Okay. <laughs> yes, for your musculoskeletal system for the Americans. <laughs> and then the next system, of course, is the metabolic system. So that's the use of fuels and, tr and turning those fuels into energy. After that, you have a hormonal system. And then our last system that we look at is a psychologic system. And all of those systems play, we would say, an equal role in providing excellence in performance. But therefore, every one of those systems can have a weakness to it that could lead to a limitation to performance. So the balance point assessment has always been about identifying which limiting factor is limiting performance. And... The recognition that for any athlete, it could be any one of those systems at any given time. Most will have an underlying weakness. And again, we're talking mostly for endurance sports and repetitive sports, running, swimming, cycling, rowing, cross-country skiing. And over the years, we have found that because most of the athletes that we've been testing are North American and don't have a great background in endurance sport like some of our European counterparts, um, they're not, they don't grow up doing long distance hiking or cross country skiing or running. Almost all of those athletes had a limitation in either their cardiovascular system or their respiratory system. We tend to create strong athletes who don't have any endurance. And, and that endurance used to just said, well, you just didn't have endurance. But we actually look at the system as to which part of the system is not able to sustain fatigue. And for a lot of those athletes, it was respiratory. When we started, when we had equipment that was able to measure respiratory ability, we could see they had respiratory fatigue. And the respiratory system is just a, a group of muscles that work together to coordinate breathing. So the main one being the diaphragm and then your intercostal muscles and accessory muscles. And until you understand that you can train that system just like any other system, people ignore it. And most North American coaches still ignore it, I think, to the detriment of the athletes. And, and on a worldwide stage, you can almost, if you see the countries that spend time with their athletes training the respiratory system, you can actually handpick which countries are actually doing it. And you can look at Olympic results of the countries that have actually incorporated respiratory training into their programs. And the, the really obvious one for a lot of endurance athletes, if they follow mountain biking, they can see the Swiss national team have dominated the world stage in the men's races for years. That group who were all started as junior athletes were all doing respiratory training as juniors. And they rapidly became, they put 10 people in the top 20 and regularly put five in the top 10 up until the last few years where there's been a resurgence from other countries. But I can tell you that I know for a fact that some of the people that have come back at the Swiss for the top athletes also started doing respiratory training. The Italians picked it up. British rowers picked it up. 
happened that they picked it up the year that they won a bunch of gold medals in uh, in Barcelona. There's numerous stories of of individual athletes who have picked up respiratory training and become have taken their their performances to the next level. So for us, that's not a surprise. But for many athletes in North America who haven't heard about respiratory training, it, it's a bit surprising. Yeah, and I I think that a lot of people don't really know what that means, respiratory training. Like they might think, oh, are you talking about VO2 max? Like, like what is respiratory training? Okay. So there's been a number of devices developed over the years to help. The North American one is called the power lung, which is a resistance device. You wear it on your face and you increase resistance. There's another one which is escaping me the name of, but it's also worn as a mask to increase resistance. It was big a couple of years ago because the Seattle Seahawks were using it during all of their training sessions. So they were increasing resistance during regular exercise. And that's shown to improve muscle, muscular strength and strength of the diaphragm. So when you take the mask off, all of a sudden you're unencumbered by the resistance and you're stronger. And it was meant to increase muscular strength, and it does. Uh, the problem with those devices is that there are some brain chemistry that changes with increased resistance. So there's some potential dangers to them that's been shown scientifically. I think the way they're using them, are, the football teams are fairly safe. I don't know that for sure, but I don't, haven't heard of any problems. But the big problem is you have to exercise fairly intensely to have the challenge from those devices. If you're doing them at rest, you can't breathe for very long before you start getting dizzy then you're not actually getting the benefit from them. So the other, there was another device that was developed by the first, the scientists who actually proved that respiratory limitations limited performance uh, was a guy named Boutillier. And he actually developed a device to help with his testing, which was eventually called the Spirotiger, a Swiss device that allows you to rebreathe CO2 and maintain normal CO2 levels, uh, carbon dioxide levels, so that you don't get dizzy when you breathe really hard and fast. And so what it allows you to do, it's a respiratory training device, meaning you can train your respiratory system breathing really hard, really fast, as if you were racing without actually having to race. You could sit on a couch and you could breathe like you're running a marathon or like you're running a 10K sprint. And you can set the volumes and the rates to match how you would race. And therefore, now you have athletes that can mimic race efforts on their breathing system without ever getting off the couch. So great for athletes who are, who've been injured, but still need intensity training or can't handle high intensity training because of their time schedule or because of their fatigue levels and they're burning themselves out. Now you can focus your efforts on one of the six systems where the limitation is. So Again, for those athletes who we've identified have a respiratory limitation, you could ask them to go ride their bike six days a week. But if they have a respiratory limitation, they'll be tired after two days of riding their bike. And all the other training for the rest of the week is a complete waste of time because they continue to fatigue the respiratory system. And that becomes a limiter. So now they can't work their legs. They can't work their heart because their respiratory system is limiting them. Whereas you could train their respiratory system away from the bike and allow them to do other stuff on the bike that actually makes their other systems better. So you can separate the training to focus in on the system that needs to work on any given day. Yeah, and I would also like to argue that even if you don't have your respiratory system as your number one limiter, like for me, it's not my number one limiter, but still training, like I admit that I haven't been very diligent about <laughs> training with the Spyro Tiger lately, but I've noticed a big difference when I have. And even just using it as a warm-up tool to warm up your respiratory system. Yeah, and there's 
we have tons of anecdotal evidence for that, that even with our athletes who we've done respiratory training with since they were juniors, and we know that the respiratory system is not a limiter, it's now a strength. So it can actually help them overcome some of their other limitations. So if they have a leg weakness, then they can handle doing higher cadence with a higher rest rate because they have the ability to coordinate faster breathing than they would have if they hadn't done the training. So they can now use it as a crutch for when their other limiters kick in, whether it's a cardiovascular limiter or a musculoskeletal limiter. Absolutely. So yeah, there's, there's no downside to training your respiratory system. There's only the downside of not understanding it or ignoring it. Yeah. And some people probably listening to this are like, well, I can't come do a balance point assessment. So how do I know if I have a respiratory limiter? Like what are the signs of this? Yeah. So that, that's hard without assessing it. It's not easy. A big part of the balance point assessment is really the education that goes along with it and, and understanding your systems. You can assess your respiratory system, but the first thing you have to do is be aware of it. So you have to understand how you're breathing and you have to think about how you're breathing. And that is not intuitive for a lot of people. So for those people that do functional threshold power and do other fairly simple wattage-based tests, it if you've done those tests a lot then it's actually easy to add one more component to it because the tests are fairly simple. So now you just have to pay attention to how you're breathing. And you can do something really simple like count the number of breaths you do in a minute. The problem with counting them is that you'll change how you breathe because you're counting them. So you'll typically slow down your breathing because you, now you're counting the breaths and you realize you're breathing out of control. So you'll start controlling your breathing. Now, if you can sustain that, then that shows you something, first of all, that you can actually change your breathing while you're working really hard. And that alone is a powerful tool because that becomes a management method for what happens what happens in a race. And losing control of breathing is a sure sign that you, something is out of balance. And you will absolutely have to slow down if your breathing is out of control. Now, whether the breathing is causing that or whether the intensity is causing that, that becomes now something that you have to find some way of measuring. But just being aware of when you're in control of your breathing, when you're out of control of your breathing, you'll very, very quickly learn that that is some kind of threshold. We call it a respiratory balance point because we know that there's metabolic balance points, which are typically seen in la with lactate, easily measurable with lactate. We know there's ventilatory thresholds. We don't call them thresholds because I'm not a big believer in thresholds, but we call it a balance point because over a certain point, you are out of balance and you're no longer able to sustain a certain rate or a certain ventilation. We have musculoskeletal balance, we have coordination balance points. So the, the simple example of that would be increase your cadence on a bike five RPM every minute until you fail and good riders can get to 110, 120 RPM, but then they'll start to bounce and they can't go any faster. Great riders, especially track cyclists, typically racing at 155, 160, 180. Some of the best in the world can get 200, 220. And if you've seen any of the YouTube phenomenons lately, there's a guy that hits 360 RPM, which is fascinating to watch. But uh, anyway, realistically, a lot, a lot of Average cyclists find it really hard to ride much higher than 100 RPM for any length of time. That's their balance point. Recognizing that that's a limitation for them, you can easily put a program together to improve that. Whether that's going to lead to improved performance depends on the kind of events you're doing and stuff. But that, that's a typical example of a different way of looking at a limitation outside of a typical threshold test that only looks at one aspect. So... Again, in a test, you can look at any number of potential limitations, including coordination.
Yeah. And I mean, we were talking about this on a ride that people use wattage as a lot of times they're using wattage now over heart rate as how they're going to do an interval workout. Like I'm going to do 220 watts for 10 minutes at a time, but that doesn't really give you that much information. And you're not actually sure what you're working if you don't know much about your respiratory system or your muscular skeletal system. So can you talk about why wattage isn't always the best thing to measure or to use as a training metric? Sure. And just to be clear, we use wattage every day. And we use it in our balance point assessments and we use it every day in our training. And we use it because it's an objective measure of what the body's producing. What we don't do is use wattage to determine whether our body's working properly or not. We use our biomarkers, and this is, it comes back to your question about what a biomarker is simply a physiologic response that we can measure. So we can measure heart rate. That's the e one of the easiest biomarkers to measure. We can measure respiratory rate. It's easy how many breaths you take in a minute. We can measure your cadence. That's a biomarker, how neurologically in tune you are. We can measure stride length in, during running. Those are the simple muscular strength we can use. So new monitors we can use called the MOXIE, which actually measures oxygen consumption at the muscular level. That's, again, why we've been able to move away from lactate. So lactate is a biomarker as well. We've been able to move away from using lactate because we have a monitor called the MOXIE monitor, which is a fantastic device that allows us to look at what's actually happening at the cellular level without having to actually take blood samples. All of those are biomarkers. And as many of those biomarkers as you are willing to take a look at, you can now use to see what's happening to create the wattage that you're producing. So just looking at wattage and ignoring what the body's doing to get that wattage is the problem that we have with people who are using wattage-based programs, is 200 watts for you today for 10 minutes might not be much of a stress on your system. But if you do 200 watts for two hours, it's probably going to be a fairly significant stress on your system. And tomorrow when you come back and you try and do that same two-hour session at 200 watts, you may not be able to create that same wattage for the same amount of time because one of your systems is fried or all of your systems are fried and you won't know which one it is unless you've been doing some sort of measurement and are fully in tune with what your body's doing. We measure biomarkers to see what the cause of fatigue is, and we can adjust our training because of that. If you're only using wattage and you don't adjust to the fact that you are fatigued, you now run the risk of, of fatiguing all your systems to the point that they don't recover. And now you lead to burnout and brownout and all the other potential negative effects of overtraining. And we've seen it, and pretty well anybody else who's ever used wattage will admit that at some point they just couldn't do what their paper said they should be able to do. And they couldn't do what they were able to do a week earlier. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? Well, it's because your body is not a machine. So 200 watts today is not going to be 200 watts tomorrow. It's going to be different for your body. So we like using our body's indicators to determine how hard we work. And then we use our body's indicators to see how long, how long it's taken to recover. And then we increase the intensity if our body's able to handle it. And if it's not, we drop the intensity and we adjust the wattage to adapt to those changes that we know are going to happen. Yeah, something that I think, especially in the winter months when you're riding the trainer, is using something that you call a step test. And so what you do is you take 
wattage. Well, you, I'll, I'll let you explain it because you're you're the expert. <laughs> <laughs> All right, a step test is just a simple way of objectively looking at how your body's going to respond to exercise on a given day. And there's a thousand different ways to do a step test. Anybody who's done a threshold test, a lactate threshold test, a ventilatory threshold test, a VO2 max has done a step test. And a step test just means that you're going to start at some given intensity, usually an easy intensity, and you're going to increase a work output every set number of minutes by a certain amount. So it's going to go up in a stepwise fashion. So I think I mentioned it earlier before, you can start at 100 watts and you could increase the watts by 20 watts every three minutes. That's an example of a step test. And you can go to failure. And if you go to failure, it's called the maximal step test. You don't have to do a maximal step test for our, from our point of view because we're trying to see at what point your body starts to fatigue. So you only have to go a few steps. Once you've done a step test a few times, you know very quickly what the response to those steps should be. So for us and our, our typical athletes are, are good age group athletes. They're not, they're not professional athletes like Sonia. Most of the athletes we coach are, are recreational to good recreational athletes. So we typically start them at a, what we consider quite an easy wattage of 100 watts. If you're a small young woman or a junior athlete, you might want to start at 80 watts or even 70 watts. But the idea is that every three or four minutes or five minutes or eight minutes, you will increase your wattage. So for an average athlete, a 20 or 30 watt jump is enough to see a physiologic change. So if you're riding at 100 watts, you'll have a heart rate that you can measure. You'll have a respiratory rate that you can measure. If you have a moxie on your leg, you, you can see an oxygen saturation that you can see. If you did a lactate number, you'd see a lactate number. After three minutes, those numbers will stabilize. And we always like going a little bit longer. So we actually typically do four minute steps. If people are pressed for time, they can do three minute steps. And we do a water stump jump that is big enough to show a physiologic change, but not so big that it causes an alarm phase. So typically that's 20 to 30 watts. If they're very good, strong athletes and they're going to go to quite a high wattage, we might go a 40 watt step, but those are our sort of highly trained athletes. So we'll continue the next step for the same amount of time, three to four minutes see a stability, stabilized heart rate, see a stabilized respiratory pattern, look at the moxie number, and then step up again. And each step we see typical changes. And if you've done the step test like our athletes do, and if they're following our plan, they actually do a step test before they exercise on every single day. And the reason for that is because we want to see physiologically how their body is doing before they decide what they're going to do in their training. And this is the big shift in mentality that balance point assessments and the balance point methodology really is, is we don't write their programs six months in advance and tell them to follow a plan for the next six months. We adapt their training program really, if they're following our advice, they'll actually change their training plan every day. And that adjusts to the fact that they are going to be tired and they may be more tired than we had predicted, and they may be less tired and be ready to train harder. And so they start with a step test. They've been educated enough to understand what that step test should result. So they actually should have their best step test ever on every given day. If they're doing their training right, they should be getting better every day. We know they're not. We know some days they're going to be fatigued from the day before, stresses from life, poor sleep habits, all the other things are going to get in their way. And if their step tests are not better, they need to modify their training because if they try and train when their step tests are weaker than they had been before, they need to take a rest day 
or they need to take a recovery day or they need to work on something different. So the non-fatigued system. So they need to have a way of measuring which system is fatigued so they can work the other systems and give that system one more day of recovery. That's the complexity of the challenge. Yeah. So for those of us who are super visual with, and you're imagining what this looks like, like I have a spreadsheet in the winter and what it has is it has on the vertical scale, it has the wattage jumps. And then across the horizontal scale, I have my heart, I have heart rate, I have respiratory frequency. And how I measure that is I actually count my breaths for the last minute of the four minute step. So how many breaths per minute am I taking? And then I also have a Moxie um, monitor. There, there's multiple brands, but it measures the amount of oxygen in a given exercising muscle. And it, is it through infrared? Or yeah, 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 near near infrared spectrometry, near NIRS, near infrared spectrometry. So really similar to a pulse oximeter that people put on their fingers to look at their oxygen saturation. Similar idea, but it shines a variable length of red light through their muscle layers and bounces back to the sensor and, and turns that into an oxygen saturation number. Yeah, and I also add a perception of effort because... As you've heard, Dr. Walter Stiano in previous episodes, like your perception of effort could be based on mental fatigue. So that helps you measure that. And then once you start doing that on a daily basis, you get a baseline of what it looks like when you're feeling good and what it looks like when you're feeling tired. And most people aren't familiar with the respiratory training or even looking at your respiratory system. So I encourage you guys to try this and just start looking at your respiratory system, how it changes after each four minute step. And there's going to be a point where you sort of lose control of your breathing. It's like maybe you're at 25, then you're at 28, then you're at 30, then maybe you're at 31. And then all of a sudden you're at 45 and it's like, okay, well that there's your respiratory balance point. And sometimes whenever you're fatigued, your respiratory system will show that like your legs won't even hurt, but you're breathing harder than you normally would be at an easier effort. So that's one way to look at your respiratory system. Yeah, that, that's a great, simple way of exactly. I think that's brilliant. I wonder if there's a way on your podcast where you can put a link to one of your, just an example of one of your step tests to show that for them so they could see it visually. Yeah, I'll do that for sure. And also I'll put, I'll uh, put myself out there and I'll put one of my balance point assessments. People are always like, what's your threshold and like all this stuff. And people don't want to share that information, but that doesn't matter. Like you're just looking at the trend. Like you could have the craziest results in a lab and not be able to perform outside. So it's all relative to you, but I'm just trying to tell people like there's a lot more sophistication out there than you realize with training. And it's really fun when you start getting into it. Cause you realize that you might have more control than you thought you did. If you feel like crap, like a lot of us want to know why. And by having all of these different biomarkers and ways to test all these things, you can start learning more about your body and then you can train with more intention. Yeah. And that's exactly what we've done over the years is pull equipment that does and helps us measure what we've observed physiologically for years. So when the Moxie came out, it was a huge step for us that when we realized that we could replace lactate testing and all of a sudden could make the same assumptions without having to poke people anymore and take blood samples. Brilliant, right? And that was, again, Jurg's insight and working with a guy, the engineer who helped develop some of the basic technology that's used in a lot of watches now. So Garmin and Apple watches all have the same technology to look at heart rate. It's exactly the same technology. It was actually developed by this group of engineers who developed the Moxie. Oh, cool. so, Is that Roger? Yeah, Roger Schmitz. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you've had him on the show yet, but he's he'd be a great person to have. He's a super nice guy and uh, and really willing to share his experiences and stuff. He's yeah, a fascinating guy and a great company. 
which also brings me, I don't know if you're ready to talk about VO2 master, but it also brings about, brings the idea of VO2 master. So I got involved with a young athlete uh, of mine who I'd coached for a little while, but who had a greater interest in computer science than he did in, in cycling. So his passion for geeking out, as Sonia would say, uh, led him to back to me in wanting to know what he could do to help the balance point team, because we were using a number of different pieces of equipment to draw data, but having to hand enter all the data in. And it was super frustrating because we were still using a dot matrix printer for our VO2 assessments. And we were using lactate numbers and we were adding Moxie data to it. And all of these things we wanted to incorporate into a single test. So he actually wrote the initial software to pull data from all of these different pieces of equipment relatively easily still wasn't super simple but he developed that and then was looking for the next project and i said man if we could figure out some way to make vo2 testing easier and more applicable for people we could revolutionize testing so he set out with that goal in mind and we're now five years later and we have just gone to market with a vo2 master which is a portable wireless VO2 monitor. So for everybody who's done a VO2 max test or has seen it and seen videos, been in almost every sports movie you've ever seen, people are hooked up to a mask with big tubes coming out on a treadmill wired from the ceiling and and to draw oxygen consumption data, which is what VO2 means. It's a measurement of, of how much oxygen the body consumes during exercise, typically reported as a VO2 max score. And our device does exactly what those huge, cumbersome lab equipment does, but it does it wirelessly and sends the data straight to your phone. So you can actually look live about what your oxygen consumption is at any given intensity throughout a step test. And that's been our big, my big passion for the last five years, working with uh, Peter O'Brien to make that a reality. And, and it's just come to fruition now, which has been super exciting. And, uh, you're going to see them out there. There's already, I know there's a guy that they've been, has been already been used in Europe with uh, the Cannondale cycling team with a couple of their athletes. There's about 50 units floating around the world right now in, on four different continents. I know there's a guy who just wrote me the other day on Strava because he was wondering why it kicked out after 90 minutes of riding outside in the rain. And we think that probably what happened was he went up to altitude and, and dropped the temperature so quickly that it actually just shut down for a moment. And, and he didn't bother trying to get it going again, but it actually has a safety mechanism that if the temperature drops too fast, it'll recalibrate. So there's a guy in Vancouver riding around with a mask on right now in the pouring rain, looking at how his VO2 changes and how his respiratory system changes over time on a long bike ride. And for us, this is incredible because this is exactly what we've been saying is missing out of scientific literature is what happens when the science hits the road. And this monitor now allows you to do scientific testing outside of the lab, which uh, for us is, from my point of view, is super exciting and I think it'll revolutionize testing in the lab as well because it's much cheaper than than what's currently available and is equally as accurate as the big lab equipment. So for the cost of a typical university lab equipment, which is 55 to 60 grand, you can have 10 of these units. So you can have 10 athletes all testing at the same time and they can be testing themselves every day instead of waiting for the lab equipment to become available. So I think there's going to be some huge changes in understanding physiology over the next 10 years. And I'm really happy that we get to be a big part of that, or I hope we're going to be a big part of that. 
Yeah, what I found, I, I've only used it once, but I used it about a year ago. It's probably one of the prototypes in a balance point assessment. And I've been testing with you guys for years. So I've seen the evolution of the different equipment for respiratory training and testing. And the thing that I loved about this was that I could see my real-time respiratory frequency. I could see real-time how many liters of air I was breathing. And a lot of times what happens with, with your respiratory system is that as you start pushing harder and harder, you start breathing faster, but you also start breathing smaller. So I'll give an example of say that you just breathe in as big of a breath you can, and then you breathe out and say you breathe out four liters, like the, I'm just throwing out a volume. Now, whenever you start exercising and things start getting harder, things start getting fatigued, you start breathing faster, like you might only be breathing at like 1.6 or two liters while you're exercising. So one thing that I think is really awesome about this, aside from just getting better data, is that it also brings an awareness to what you're actually doing with your respiratory system while you're exercising. And it, it trains your mind to say, okay, like I'm taking small breaths right now. I need to train my system so that I can take bigger breaths. And the reason you want to take bigger breaths is because you get more oxygen and that's more oxygen that can go to your exercising muscles, therefore more power and all of that good stuff. So it's just really cool to have technology where you can see this because, again, the respiratory system is just this mystical thing where we just start breathing hard and don't really know what's happening or how to manipulate our respiratory system during exercise to get better results. And another really cool thing about respiratory system and training is that a lot of us live at low altitude. Like I used to live in Colorado at a mile high. Now I live at a thousand feet high and going to altitude and racing is an issue. But if I do specific respiratory training, you're able to, I'm not able to change my red blood cell count because I did a whole science experiment on myself, but you're still able to find a way to build your tolerance to exercising while you're in a hypoxic state. And I'm kind of off on a tangent, but just getting to know all of this different information about your respiratory system is just so incredibly powerful. So two quick points to clarify. You're you're awesome because you're you are a science geek with a really huge background in in athletics and and high performance athletics with really great results. But it's been really fun to be able to talk to you about things that most it goes over a lot of people's heads, but you've always adopted it with a huge interest and passion. And so that's been super fun. Um couple things. The bigger tidal volume, so the bigger breaths that you take, really Although it does give you more oxygen with each breath, the biggest benefit to bigger breathing, it gets rid of the CO2. So just a reminder that the main driver for breathing is to eliminate carbon dioxide from your system. So the harder you work, the more carbon dioxide your muscles are produced, the more you need to breathe it off. And that's exactly why everyone who exercises breathes more and gets shorter breath is because they're trying to blow off the CO2. Uh, very tightly regulated from a metabolic point of view in the human body. We work with a very tight range of pH between 7.35 and 7.45. So it has to be super tightly regulated. Any numbers outside of those regular pHs, the body doesn't work very well. And the way we manage our pH is by changing CO2 levels. So that's why it's so tightly regulated and why our respiratory system is so tightly tied to CO2. But you're totally right. The bigger volumes that you're able to take the more efficiently you're able to get rid of CO2. So it's much more efficient to breathe 
30 breaths a minute with a three liter lung volume, which would be 90 liters a minute, then it would be to breathe 45 breaths a minute with a two liter lung volume. First of all, you're taking 50% faster breathing. So you're engaging those muscles 50% more often. But the other thing that happens when you breathe 45 breaths a minute, every breath you take, there's a small percentage of that breath that's called dead space is the space in your mouth and in your trachea and the, the first main branches of the trachea, the bronchi that do not exchange oxygen. So you're actually moving air in and out of your system that actually isn't exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide. We call that dead space. If you do that 45 times a minute, it actually becomes a fairly big chunk of what you've breathed is not actually helping you in any way. It's a waste of energy. So we know that the slower you breathe, the better, more efficient use you can make. And the only way you can breathe slower is to breathe bigger volumes because you're going to need to breathe 90 liters a minute. The only way to do that is to either breathe deeper and slower or smaller and faster. So uh, that's just a clarification. Getting rid of the CO2 is the important part. Taking bigger breaths is definitely more efficient. And if you can learn how to do that, and you can learn, uh, just so everybody knows, you can learn how to do that. You do not have a fixed lung volume. There is very good evidence that people who've done respiratory training, we have anecdotal evidence from our athletes, but the one that is probably more shocking is the Ryder Hedgestall who was involved with some of the initial Spyro Tiger work. And again, one of the reasons that he succeeded so well was he and Jeff Kubush both did Spyro Tiger training initially. We're the first Canadians to use it because it was their mentor, Jurg Feldman, who brought Spyro Tiger to Canada. When Ryder was first working with Jurg as a junior athlete, he was only able to breathe three, uh, 4.5 liters per breath even though he was fairly tall at the time, he was six, I think he's six one. He was able to increase his lung volumes to over eight liters. <laughs> yeah. He actually hit one of the highest measurables, 8.5. So you see what happened. If you now just do the mental math, if you are forced to breathe 150 or 200 liters a minute at a max effort on a bike, but you can do that with six liter lung volumes, it now becomes a relatively easier time to do that than if you can only breathe four liter lung volumes. And that's exactly what, why that Swiss mountain bike team do so incredibly well is it, whatever respiratory effort they need is not a challenge for them because they can challenge themselves with a Spyro Tiger breathing much higher volumes than they would ever need to do in a race. But like you said, Sonia, and this is again, one of the fascinating things with a, with a VO2 master, you can actually see that happen live and you can see it happen in training. And those times when people say, oh yeah, I couldn't figure out what happened. My, my legs felt like lead today. In some of those people, you can actually see that the respiratory system gave out. And the reason their legs are fatigued is because they're not able to blow off the CO2 anymore. They may or may not be able to provide enough oxygen. Most of the time they actually can provide enough oxygen, but they can't blow off the CO2. So they actually go into deficit because their body shut down to preserve the oxygen getting to the heart and preserve the ability to continue to breathe. And if their breathing system is fatigued, they will preferentially shut down peripheral muscles in protection of the central muscles, the diaphragm and the respiratory system. So although it feels like your legs are giving out and you think, okay, I just need to work harder on the bike tomorrow. You've already fried your respiratory system working harder on the bike. Guess what? You're going to fry your respiratory system even more and you'll get worse and worse and worse. This is one of the key reasons that going to altitude for long durations of time, people feel massively fatigued when they first get there because they have to increase the respiratory rate. And that is because of low oxygen rates. And so your comment that it's to draw in more oxygen, that's exactly why people are doing it. 
the lower oxygen tension forces them to breathe more. They fatigue the respiratory system on the first day that they're there and the rest of their training is totally shot. And they'll tell you that anybody who goes from sea level to altitude to train will tell you they couldn't train. They could barely survive. They were just barely getting around the pedals until their bodies adapted to the higher levels of respiratory intensity. And that adaptation of functional changes in breathing happened long before the higher levels of red blood cell count. So anybody who says they got better at altitude, really what they got better was a respiratory system. So if you're going to altitude to change your respiratory system, understand that's what you're doing and then readjust your training to not totally screw your respiratory system the first day so you don't wreck the rest of your week or two weeks or six weeks that you're up there. Yeah, so with a Spyro Tiger, like this is that respiratory training device we're talking about. And we're actually not really like, we're not affiliated with them. We're just saying this is what we like. Like we don't make any money talking about Spyro Tiger. But basically if you want to try it yourself, like you have to figure out what is your lung volume because you buy a bag, you buy a two liter, three liter, four liter, if your rider has jaw an eight liter bag, if they even make those. And then you use that bag and how the Spyro Tiger works is you set, you can set a frequency. So like a number of breaths per minute and it beeps so that you know, like what rate to breathe at. And then it also shows you if, are you filling up the bag enough or are you underfilling the bag or are you overfilling the bag? And so it puts you on this training where you can actually measure all that stuff and just breathe with it. But a word of warning, Andrew was just talking about blowing up your respiratory system. And I've actually done this with the Spyro Tiger is like, yeah, I'm going to train hard outside and then I'm going to come inside and I'm just going to work my respiratory system. And what that's done is made me feel terrible on the bike for multiple days in a row because I went too hard on the Spyro Tiger. So just a word of warning, but I think this is something that people should really look into. Yeah. Recognize that anytime you train any system, (laughs) it's going to have a negative effect. Training doesn't make you stronger. Training makes you weaker. Recovery makes you stronger. And that has been our one of our mottos for years with Balance Point. And it's a hard thing for people, some people to get their heads around, but all training will make you weaker. The question is, how hard did you train and for how long did you do it? That will determine how long it takes you to recover from that training intensity. And if you're, especially if you're working on your weakness, and this is what we do every day, we work on our weaknesses. So it's super hard to train like that because it's, it's debilitating. If you work your weakness to the point of fatigue, it is going to take you two to three days to recover. And that doesn't mean you can't train the next day. It means you can't train in a way that's going to use that system again. So you can do great leg strengthening sessions after you've completely messed up your respiratory system. There are ways for you to work your cardiac system. It's not easy because most cardiac challenges have a respiratory component to it as well. But there are ways to do it. It just takes some thought process and an understanding that you need to recover your systems before you whack them again. And speaking of whack them, I asked Andrew's permission to tell the story before we recorded. But you do a lot of, you've done, well, you've done like mountain bike stage races. You've done pure road racing. You've done the world championships for Ironman and Kona. And you were on a highlight video. Like you were famous for one of your... <laughs> your Ironman challenges. So I want to hear the story of what happened because now you have all this knowledge about these systems and then you figured out how to override them. So <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Uh, yeah. My closest brush to fame. So uh, to make a long story short, I passed out uh, seven kilometers from the finish in Kona on my I think it was the third time I was in Kona. So I'd qualified for world championships a couple of times. Uh, my wife races Ironman as well. And it was a big goal for us to go and race there together. And my 
lifelong dream was to compete at Kona and then complete the Xterra double. So you do Ironman and then two weeks later you race Xterra and the combined time has an award called the double. It used to be the races were only a week apart. And so a lot of the pros would stick around and then race the Xterra kind of as a joke. But it turned out a couple of them were really, really good at both. So Aniko Lanos was was famous for making the podium in Kona. He came second a couple of times in Kona and then coming and a couple of years he actually made the podium in Xterra, which just shows how incredible an athlete he is to be able to recover from an effort like Ironman and then and then race again a week later. It's now two weeks apart. So there's a few people that that stick around and do both. And it's a huge uh, it's a huge accomplishment for me to even qualify for both races. And so I qualified that year and this is the first year I was going to try and and do well at the double. I was having what I would consider the race of my life. I had a I have a swimming background, so I usually do okay out of the water, but I sort of uh, outperformed my expectations on the swim. I biked fast. I biked about 15 minutes faster than I thought I was going to be able to bike. It was a little bit of an easier windier, so I was uh, lucky in that perspective. And I had a dream goal of breaking 10 hours in Kona, which I've done a number of times outside of Kona, but to do it in Kona for me is a, is a huge accomplishment. I'm, I'm not that big. So riding in the Kona winds is super hard for me. I'm a good cyclist, but I'm a great cyclist. So it's always a challenge to fight the heat and the winds on the bike. But I had a good bike and I was running and I thought, ah, this is brilliant. I'm jogging and it's easy and everything's going well. I typically don't wear a watch when I compete because I listen to my body and there's no point in seeing the time because there's nothing I can do about how fast I'm going. I just, I ride and I run what my physiological handle on the day. And so I had paced myself really well on the run. I, I had a goal of negative splitting the run and I'd jogged the first 10 miles, uh, five miles out along Ali'i Drive and back. And, and I walked up the big climb off Ali'i and people were cheering me on saying I could do it. And I said, I can do it. I just, I could run it, but I'd be shattered at the top. So I, I just maintained my breathing and I went to the top of the hill and I, I started running again. I picked up the six guys that passed me on the hill and I was, they were all like, Oh, I can't, I should have walked the hill with you. I'm running along and I, I ran into the energy lab and back out for people that know the course. And so I was on the way back into Kona and it's about 12 K back into town. I saw my wife, she'd ridden her bike out to cheer me on. And, uh, she couldn't believe it. She said I, I was well within, I was, I think I should have had a, a little bit of a light bulb go off because my mental math was off a bit. I asked someone what time it was just so I had some idea. It's really weird in Kona. You can actually see the sun setting and it, you know that the sun sets exactly 12 hours after the start of the race. And so for a lot of people, the goal is to finish in the daylight. And so the sun's low on the horizon for hours. And I, I didn't know that. So I saw the sun going down. I thought I was, I had no idea. I thought I was, I thought I was for sure over 10 hours and probably closer to 11 hours. And someone told me what time it was. And initially my mental math went, oh my God, I'm going to be nine and a half hours. And at that time, my, my mind was working. I actually was on track to go between nine and a half and nine 45. And I was over the moon. I'm like, you don't have to do anything special. You just need to make it home. So I was, felt like I was just jogging and it felt really good. And then I saw my wife and I said, I feel good. And she goes, you're killing this. I said, okay. I said, I have more left. And she goes, well, let's see what you got. So I 
started working uh, towards the finish. And I remember thinking, okay, every kilometer I can pick up the pace just a little bit. And so I picked up the pace a little bit. And then the next kilometer, I picked up the pace again. And then my wife saw me and she looked a little concerned. And I, at that's the point where I should have clued in there was something wasn't quite right. My mentation wasn't quite as good because then I started figuring out how long I needed to run the last 10K. And I remember thinking, okay, well, I'm only nine hours into the run. I have an hour to the last 10K and I'm well within running that. It's easy. But then somehow I started to screw up my mental math thinking I only had 40 minutes left and there was no way I was going to make it unless I really booked it. So I started picking up the pace again and my wife says something looked wrong. I was extending my neck and I was running really stiff-legged and I was overstriding and I was running weird, she said. But she didn't say anything. She just said, I'm going to ride ahead and I'll see you at the finish. So I said, okay. So she rode off and I didn't know this, but she rode about a mile and she was going to wait there just to see how I was doing. And I never made that mile. I, I went from what I thought was running really good effort with everything controlled to unconscious on the pavement. And Ginny, my wife has a story that she was sitting there in the shade of one tree on the, on one of the middle islands of the highway. And somebody rode up and said, Oh my God, did you see that guy? And she said, what? She goes, Oh, he just totally fell apart and ran out to the middle of the road and passed out. And she's like, Oh, what was he wearing? And the guy says, oh, I don't know. He was wearing blue with a black hat. And uh, I think his number was like 1785. We called the medics. And she's like, oh, that's my husband. <laughs> and she uh, rode back just in time as the ambulance pulled up. And uh, they started putting me in the back of the thing, which I don't totally don't remember. She remembers me calling out, asking for Ondansetron, which is a anti-emetic, anti-vomiting pill. Because I was puke. Every time they picked me up, I was throwing up. Yes. And I yelled at them. I said, please don't lift me head up because I knew mentally, I knew that if I was, I was so dehydrated that if my head was above my feet, my pressure was dropping. And I was, and when I was in the ambulance, they said, are you a doctor? I said, yeah, I am. Why? They said, well, cause you told us to keep you in Trendelenburg. And the only person that would know that would be a doctor or a nurse. And, and Trendelenburg is a position where your feet are higher than your head and it keeps the blood supply to your head. And that's what was the problem was every time they tried to pick me up, they'd lift my head up first and I'd puke all over them. So, yeah, so I made the highlight reel that year on NBC, lying on the ground, wobbling in the heat. And it became a famous thing within our team because one of the guys who was watching Kona Live didn't know. It just clicked on me and he somehow got a screen caption of it and then <laughs> shared it with everybody I knew. And I got more emails and compliments for that one flash of thing than I ever had in my entire athletic career. And I've certainly never been famous as an athlete, but I almost hit uh, notoriety with that one. So yeah. Yeah. It's certainly a learning experience. The heat, I remember going through a whole bunch of the reasons why that happened, but the fascinating thing for me is how physiologically I went from feeling really good to being over the edge. And that edge is so fine at Ironman that, uh, yeah, when you watch it next, oh my God, it's next weekend. Uh, super awesome. Such a great race to watch. If you're going to, if you have a chance, watch that race. Cause, uh, what those athletes do in that heat is 
unbelievable. I've since gone back and finished it again. So, and done the double. My wife won the double, actually. That's her claim to fame is she's actually a double winner. I didn't win it. Well, and she but, also yeah. just, what, what, did she win the Ultraman? Or no, what? she was third. Yeah. That, she completed it, which is, totally was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. One last question. So sure. you mentioned that fine line in the Ironman, like a lot of us that we're the racing or maybe we're just on a group ride trying to kill our friends. But like, <laughs> how do you know when to not go over that line? Because I certainly am not a good judgment of, the, of that. <laughs> Clearly I'm not. I may not be the right person to ask. Uh, I have always been accused of looking like I was in control and never pushing my limits. And my wife told me that for years. She goes, you always look like you're just out for a jog. You never look like you're pushing. And clearly I've always been pushing because, and my limit is just beyond where I've been. Cause I've had a lot of results at Ironman that are way beyond what I think I deserve. And I may make it look like I'm not trying, but clearly I am on my limit because that one day was all it took to show me that a little bit more effort and I was flat on the ground. So the answer is how hard can you push and how hard do you know? How do you know? I think you have to use whatever data you have available. Wattage certainly is not going to tell you anything to tell you whether you're at your limit or not. Heart rate has some ability, but we have pretty good evidence that if you're testing your heart rate in a controlled situation inside a lab or on a trainer, that what happens when you get outside and you start having to engage your cardiac, your stability muscles and other things, we know that your heart rate is going to drive higher. And, and we've seen it numerous times again, that you, you can go over your theoretical max heart rate for long periods of time. And people do this all the time and they can't understand why. And that's because there's no such thing as a theoretical max heart rate. It's just your body adapting to whatever, you're putting in front of it. So heart rate's not a good determinant, especially if you're going to Kona and you're running in the heat, don't use your heart rate. It will be, unless you've done a ton of testing with your heart rate in hot, humid conditions. Don't uh, so, use sorry, your heart. Sorry to interrupt, but I, I did a lot. It was either La Ruta or like the Rincon de la Vieja, 100 mile mountain bike race in Costa Rica. And it was super hot, like insan insanity and humid and my heart rate, yeah, this was at La Ruta. My heart rate was 187 for seven hours. And my like, quote, heart rate, you know, balance point heart rate was supposed to be 180. So like, that's just an example of not really being able to trust that heart rate. No, you can't use your heart rate. That, anytime we do testing, we explain to people, we're looking at, we are looking at trends and we're looking at guidelines to help identify the weaknesses. We're not using it as guidelines for how you're going to race. Yeah, and that's a perfect example. And, and you only need to see that once in your own training to realize that anybody who tells you that's the heart rate you need to race at is uh, doesn't understand the challenges that predicament puts you in. So heart rate's not a great measuring. Fascinatingly, and again, partly because my passion is there, respiratory rate is a fantastic one because your respiratory rate doesn't lie. It tells you how much CO2 you're producing. And your ability to sustain a stable respiratory rate is a prime determinant of whether you're going to be able to continue going. Now, it's also important to recognize that people have different words for it. There's what we call a ventilatory threshold. They have, there's theoretically two ventilatory thresholds. We see this all the time in our balance point assessments. The first threshold is when you go from a stable controlled breathing pattern to a slightly faster breathing pattern. Anybody who jogs and runs will see the same thing. If they jog, they can control really slow breathing. They run a little faster and they have to breathe a little faster. 
simply that is your ventilatory threshold, your first ventilatory th threshold. Your second ventilatory threshold typically corresponds to what a lot of people used to call a lactate threshold. It's the ability to sustain a, re a controlled respiratory rate before you lose total control of it, and that's your VT2. And there's very good evidence that if you can't control your breathing, you are not going to last very long, two to three minutes tops. So if your race is longer than two or three minutes and you are not controlling your breathing, you are not going to be able to sustain that output. Now, you might be able to keep riding with a really erratic heart rate, but you're not going to be able to keep going the same intensity. So people say, oh, yeah, I, I do my hour-long ride with total loss of lack of respiratory control. Yeah, but you didn't do it with a sustained wattage. So if you started at 300 watts, guaranteed by the end of that hour, you're riding down to 250 or 220, and you just weren't measuring it. You weren't looking at it. So... Yes, you can ride with an erratic heart rate or, sorry, an erratic resp rate or a stable heart rate, but your performance is dropping as you're going. So if you're trying to get the best results, the best results are made. I mean, you can sustain the highest level of output for the longest period of time, stable. Great example was the marathon world record that was set in Berlin a few weeks ago. He negative split that run. So he went as fast as he could go, knowing that he had one more level that he could go faster for the second half. And I guarantee he did not change his breathing for that whole marathon because if he had had erratic breathing, he would have shut down and would have never would have made the second half. So I would use breathing. That's how I, that's how I use, but you have to have practice with it. And you have to understand what your different thresholds are and what different rates you can sustain for the duration of the event that you're doing. I know you're racing a 10K road run this weekend. <laughs> it's awesome. So it's going to take her somewhere around 40 minutes. We hope. We hope. So she needs to choose a, a rest rate that she knows she can sustain for 40 minutes. So we had a long talk on the bike about that, about different ways of doing that. She hasn't had a lot of respiratory training lately. So I've advised her she's probably not going to have as much control as she might have had had she done the training. So she's going to have to settle at whatever rate she can do and make sure that it's in control because if it's out of control, she'll shut down and that'll that'll force her out of whatever pace she's trying to set. And I might make the highlight reel. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Like there's so much information and we did open a massive can of worms with a lot of a lot of science and challenging a lot of ways that people tend to think about physiology or training. So if people are really loving this and they want more information or maybe they have some questions, is there a way people can get in touch with you? Or maybe we can even do a blog post of like questions that people sent you. That way everyone can. Sure. Benefit. Yeah. I think doing it through you would be the best way. Certainly if you're interested in balance point and the methodology, then reaching out to balance point, uh, it's balancepointracing.com. I think it's also balancepoint.com as well. He's also changed that. All one word. Luke Way is the head coach who's uh, working with some national level athletes now. Uh, he's doing the bulk of it, but that's one way of getting a hold of us. But getting questions specifically about this podcast, like going through you, I think would be brilliant and uh, awesome. give us a chance to reconnect if we need to. Yeah, there's a contact form on my website. So just go to my website. Also, make sure you sign up for the newsletter because I'm thinking about as I have a little bit more time and in <laughs> getting into the winter months, putting out some newsletters about this specifically, because I think this is really interesting and, and really powerful for training. Awesome. Thanks a lot for having me on. Cool. Thanks so much. Awesome. You guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. That was pretty phenomenal. And as Dr. Seller said, if you have questions for him, send them to me first and you can get that through my website. So just go to sonyalooney.com 
and there's a contact form on there and I personally read and answer all of the emails. So if you want to ask Dr. Sellers a question, we can send it on to him. Big thank you and shout out to those of you who pre-ordered the Moxie and Grit winter cycling socks. We had Do Epic Shit, we had a Chubby Unicorn, and we had Sexy Beast. And it was really crazy. Like Chubby Unicorn and Sexy Beast were like almost equally popular to the exact number of pairs sold for the pre-order. So thanks so much for the support there, you guys. And I think you're really going to enjoy these socks. They're super comfortable, not only for winter riding, but they're just so cushy and warm, but they're not like chunky like some of the other winter socks can be so i think you're really going to enjoy them and we did make or we are currently making it's in production a very limited amount like on the order of maybe five to eight extra pairs of each sock in each size in case you missed out so go to moxieandgrit.com that's m-o-x-y-a-n-d-g-r-i-t.com and also go to our instagram it's at moxieandgrit m-o-x-y-a-n-d-g-r-i-t whoa say it's all crazy whenever you spell out something that quickly but yeah check out our instagram we're on there all the time and last but not least don't forget that the plant power tribe facebook community group is free and all of you are invited and you don't have to be a vegan you don't have to eat plant-based all you have to do is be interested in surrounding yourself with people who are like-minded who want to put their health and wellness first and the group isn't always 100% about eating. I've seen people post wins about their events that they've done. I've seen people post just wellness tips. And there's over 1,300 people in that group. So a lot of times, like someone posted the other day that they're on a junk food binge and they just need some help to stop. And just having that support really helps. Like how many of us have been on a junk food binge or been drinking every night, or maybe you were eating healthy and then you have been sliding back into eating unhealthy again. Really the people we surround ourselves with, the content that we read, the things that we see, the thoughts that we have, those all shape our experience and our reality. So I love this group because it just really helps help bring more positivity into our lives. Thanks again for listening to the show, you guys. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.